morning, friends. How's it going? That was a lame way to say good morning. Good morning, friends. Still lame. Good morning. Hi. How's everyone doing? Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Jake. Um, I am not a pastor here. Just a normal person, normal dude. Our pastors are also normal people and normal humans. And I say that to let you know that there's nothing special or... Um, I, I don't know, different about me, right? I'm, I'm just here sharing some thoughts. I'm sharing some ways of looking at Scripture a little bit differently. One of my favorite theologians once said, um, God spoke. Oh, hold on. This happened last time. I'm real bad at these things. Yeah, the beard loves you. <laughs> I'll just shave this part of my beard <laughs> off. I'll go half and half. Is that better? Yeah. Okay, okay, good. Um, so one, one of my favorite theo theologians once said, God spoke and everything else is commentary. And I've always really appreciated that sentiment because it's a reminder that at our best, we are human beings searching for the divine, seeking to understand what's beyond our lives and what's above our lives and what's happening in our lives and through our lives. And at our best, we're having faith that there's something more to this life, but none of us are God incarnate. And so it's, it's us kind of interpreting what is this message, what is this being, what is this deity? So I, I just want to offer that as a preface for today's conversation. And, and today we're going to talk about a really familiar story. And I want to do a little bit of an experiment this morning. The story we're going to talk about this morning is what Rachel just talked about with the kids. It's the story of Jesus walking on the water across a violent sea of Galilee, rescuing his disciples from the storm. Peter, seeing Jesus, leaps out of the boat, walks across the water, gets a few steps in, remembers, I can't walk on water, starts sinking. Jesus rescues him and says, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt me? So as an experiment, how many of you have heard this story before? Yeah, pretty much everyone. What's interesting about this story, if you grew up in church, it was like the hits, right? It was like the top 10 stories of Jesus. You heard it at every VBS. You heard it routinely through sermons and messages. What's also interesting about this story, this is one of the Jesus stories that transcends church culture and finds its way into culture. There are people who grew up unchurched with no historic Christian connection who've heard this story or who've heard parts of this story, who are familiar with this story. There are people from other faiths who have heard this story. This story is one of those stories that transcends beyond just mainstream Christianity into the culture and becomes a familiar lore or legend or fable or story or historical uh, uh, account, whichever way you, you tend to look at it. And here's an interesting thing. Every time I heard this story growing up, and I'm, I'm not sure your experience, maybe, maybe same, every time I heard this story, the purpose of the story was to talk about our faith in Jesus. And the star of the story, or the main central character in the story, was really Peter, who started to walk after Jesus, lost faith, and began sinking in the water. 
And so the story was really this reminder, this call to arms, if you will, that we as followers of Jesus need to have profound faith that takes us outside into these scary territories. And unless we have that faith, we're destined to sink. It was a story about our faith. And what I want to offer this morning is maybe a counter view to that. Because I don't really think that the purpose of this story is about our faith at all. I think that there is a different thing happening underneath the surface in this story. And in order for us to get there, I want to pose a question. Let's think about what's happening in this story. Jesus, the scripture says immediately after this, this is in Matthew chapter 14, verse 22. I think I'm real bad with details and memories, but I think that's where we are. Matthew 14, 22. It says immediately after this, Jesus made his disciples go out into the boat to go over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Immediately after what? The story that happens right before this is Jesus feeding the 5,000. Immediately before that, John the Baptist was beheaded. Word gets out about that. Jesus flees that city into a new place. Crowds are following Jesus, interested and curious about what's happening, wondering after Jesus, you might say. Jesus in that moment looks out on a sea of 5,000 people, feeds them with a few loaves of bread and a few fish, which is a way of saying that Jesus fed them from nothing, that out of nothing the people were fed. In their wondering, out of nothing, the people were given food from somewhere. This is an important detail that we'll come back to later. But immediately after this, Jesus sends his disciples out across the Sea of Galilee, and he heads up to the mountain to pray. And as he's praying, he gets done praying, he comes down, the sea has become violent, the disciples have been on the sea by some, by some accounts for nine hours, you know, rowing their oars in the midst of this violent, terracious torrent of a storm, in this violent sea. And Jesus sees their distress and walks out to them and makes himself known to them. And so here's the question I want to pose you to help us think about this story a little bit differently. Why the heck does Jesus do this? Right? Is this like a flex is this Jesus saying, I'm intentionally going to send my disciples out so I can go pray, and then I'm going to be like, what's up, suckers? I'm Jesus, and walk on the water and catch their attention? Because it seems really odd that he makes this thing happen, that he kind of causes this dramatic series of events. So the question that I want to ask us is, is why does Jesus do that? And what that is, that question causes us to realize that maybe there's something more happening to this story than we tend to think about or that we tend to, to give credit to. And so for us to answer that question of why does Jesus do this, and really, what does that mean for us as people trying to understand Jesus and follow Jesus, what does that mean for our world at large? I want to talk about five things. Number one, and I know five things is a lot. I, I'm not super long-winded, so we'll go quick through these five things. Um, the first thing I want to talk about is what the Gospels are, because it's really important that we focus on that. The second thing I want to talk about is I want to talk about old men, gods, and mountains. After that, we're going to talk about seas, and then we're going to talk about a whole new era 
And then lastly, we're going to get to the really, really good stuff, which is a thought on where God walks. So first I want to talk about what the Gospels are. The Gospels are, are um, if you grow up in, in church, if you grow up in Christianity, you, you understand that the Gospels are the good news. They're the announcement of Jesus the Messiah, making himself known, God coming to earth, taking on flesh, walking among us, dying for our sins, being crucified, arising to heaven, and launching the new movement and the new kingdom. The Gospels are also something else, even more than that. The word gospel, first of all, is not a new word. It's not something that Christians invented. It's not something that uh, John or Matthew or Mark or Luke invented and said, we have the gospels. The gospel was a common vernacular in the Roman Empire. Gospels in the Roman Empires were declarations of good news, and they were often used as ways of describing victories of the expansion of the kingdom of Rome. When the Roman emperor would set out to conquer an adjacent land, when he would set out to enlarge the territory to make the empire stronger and richer and mightier, the army would go forth and fight that battle. As the army would win that battle, as they would lay bare the enemy land, a messenger would come back to the empire, to the kingdom capital, and would offer a decree, a gospel, the good news, that Rome has been victorious, that our kingdom has grown and expanded. The Gospels of Jesus are a co-opting of that story. They're a subversive way of thinking about empires and kingdoms. And oftentimes the writers of the Gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, would pluck and pull from these familiar themes and set new twists on them of ways of saying, hold on, there's a different kingdom here. There's something other happening in our midst. There's a new kingdom rising to power in this new and subversive way. Gospels were, were letters. They were written to people, real people. I know. Real people in real situations in real times. And so as people were either... Uh, potentially reading this gospel, more likely hearing this gospel, or hearing accounts of this gospel, different words of these gospels, different themes would have leapt off the pages. They would have caused them to perk up. The Jewish audience was the original intent of these gospels. And when they heard certain things, they would have leaned into the story a little bit differently. They would have said, wait, that's something that I didn't think about. That's something we need to consider. And so in this story, there are actually five things that happen. There are five clues to the original Jewish audience that something is amiss in this story, that something different is happening. And those five clues are these phrases. You'll see them kind of peppered throughout. Number one, Jesus went up on the mountain to pray. Number two, he walked out on the sea. He walked upon the water. Number three, and this is found in, in John's account, not in Matthew's account. It's like one of those small details that one of the authors just kind of plugs in there. It says, when Jesus walked out onto the water, he meant to pass them by. And that's a really important detail that we'll come back to. There's also this phrase, take courage and do not be afraid. And then there's this last phrase, for it is I. 
these phrases, it's easy for us, thousands of years later, in our Western context, to read over those and to not really understand the significance of those words and those phrases. But for the Jewish audience, it would have been mired in profound significance. The Jewish audience would have grown up with the Septuagint. They would have grown up with the Torah. They would have grown up in the law. They would have grown up in the legends and the lures of old men from old times past who did things certain ways. And so let's talk about, about some of these things. First, we're going to talk about this went up on a mountain. And this is where we're going to talk about old men, gods, and mountains. In olden times and ancient times, people of faith would go up mountains to encounter gods. The gods in the ancient times didn't live amongst us, didn't live beside us, didn't live necessarily in our palaces. They were afar off on top of mountain peaks in faraway places. And when things were bad, when things were not going the way that we wanted them to go, the old men of the time, aka the elders, I don't mean that disrespectfully, the elders of the time would venture to the mountaintops to intercede and to plead for the gods to show them favor and to show them mercy. There's also one other old man who does this in a really significant Jewish story. Does anyone know in Jewish lore who went up to a mountain to talk to God? Moses. This is the first signal that goes off in the mind of people hearing this story for the ancient audience. Wait a second. Moses also went up to a mountain to talk to God and to pray. Here's Jesus going up to a mountain to talk to God and to pray. And so this is setting us in a familiar routine of the day, a familiar ritual. Of course, holy men go up to mountains to talk to gods because it's what holy men do, and the gods talk to holy men on mountains. But, as is the way that things happen with Jesus, there's more to the story. And so as Jesus is praying on the mountain, he then walks out across the sea, or he comes down off the mountain and he walks out across the sea. The story tells us that the sea is violent, that it has been raging, that the waves are tossing, the boat that the disciples in are in to and fro. Sea is significant. Seas are um, symbols in Scripture, especially for ancient Jewish audiences. Seas were not things of peaceful tranquility. You know, today we think of sea and we think of, I don't know, like cruises and dolphins and peace and calmness. Not so in olden times where you didn't know what was on the outskirts of the sea. You didn't know what was beyond what your eye could see. Seas were oftentimes interpreted as chaos, torment, hell. This is flooded through the Old Testament scriptures. Starts in Genesis with the creation narrative. When the Spirit of God hovers out over the darkness and over the sea, God hovering out over the abyss, moving across the sea and across the water. 
Job talks about an encounter with God where God reminds Job, who are you? I am God who stretched out the heavens and who walked upon the sea. But there is one sea, especially, that is very important in the Old Testament. Kelly, you should preach this message. You're spot on. The Red Sea. And the Red Sea is one of those moments. It's one of those stories which everything after orients back to. For the Jewish people, the Red Sea was a moment when God walked them from something to something. Where God led the people from Egypt, from slavery, from bondage, into a new order, into a new world, into a new way of being, into a new existence, into a new creation, into something far risky and far unknown. God led them out of something into a new thing that they were intended to be. This is important because this would have been in the mind when the Jewish audience was understanding or receiving this story about Jesus walking on the water. Because Jesus walking on the water is not just a miraculous feat of feet on top of waves. It is a call that this person is doing what God does. God is the one that walks on waters. A little bit of a spoiler alert. I have ADD, so I don't go in order ever. So sorry, we're going to skip around a bit. This is the first time in Scripture that the disciples, after this encounter, say the words to Jesus, you are truly the Son of God. This is not his first miracle. He'd done crazy miracles before this. He'd healed people. He changed water into wine. He also calmed the sea prior to this. This is the first time that the disciples saw something different. And it's exactly because of this connection. God's walk on water. The God walks on water. And so, the sea is really significant here. This understanding of the abyss and of chaos. And in this story, you have Jesus walking across the chaos. Some interpretations would be you have Jesus walking through hell to get to his disciples. And then this is really important. John says Jesus meant to pass them by. Seems like a jerk move, right? Like, let's be honest. They're in trouble. They've been rowing for nine hours. I row for 30 minutes and my arms are like falling off. So these guys have been at it for a long time. It feels a little jerkish to be like, I could save you, but I just am going to pass by you instead. But this is really actually a significant thing. This phrase, to pass by, also would have cued alarms in the Jewish people's minds. Think of Moses. God passes by Moses to make himself known. There are all these times in in the olden time scriptures when God wants to make himself known to people, he passes them by, but they're never allowed to see him. And so this is a clue that Jesus is doing something like the God of old would do. He intended to pass them by. But what's different here is he stops and turns. 
And this is so profoundly significant. Peter sees him. The disciples see him. They're terrified because they think it's a ghost. I always read this and thought, of course, because he's walking on water. In the middle of the storm at 3 o'clock in the morning, I would probably think that's a ghost too. But people in the olden times, any time that God passed them by, were afraid because they thought there was a ghost. So I think there's a connection here. I think the disciples weren't quite sure what they were seeing. Jesus says this phrase, Take courage and do not be afraid. For it is I. A way of interpreting this phrase, it is I, would be to say, I am. Which is exactly what God said to the people in Egyptian times. The declaration of God here among us. Peter sees this, hears this, and says, if it's you, if it's really you, crazy ghost, then call me over to you and let me walk on the water to you. Jesus says, come over to me. Now this is where things get ludicrous. In this story, what's different is God turns and faces and draws a person to him. This is not God staying distant. This is not God making himself unknown. This is God reaching out and pulling too. Now, it's easy to look at Peter in this story and say, what an idiot. Like, Jesus is there. You're walking on water. Just keep walking on water. It's fine. Like, why did you not have faith? But I think there's grace in this story. I think that if we have faith, if you have faith, and you doubt, I think if you don't have answers, if you're uncertain of things, if you fear things, God is not afraid of that. It is okay to doubt. It is okay to fear. We are human beings clawing after God, clawing after the divine. God does not punish us for that lack of belief. God reaches out to us in that unbelief. And this is the story. God coming to us in the most violent, difficult, hellish situations and reaching out to us and drawing us in. So, what does this story mean for us today? I miss the whole new era thing. This is, this is Jesus announcing a whole new era. This is why the connection to Moses is so significant why the connection to the Torah and the Septuagint is so significant, why this moment is so significant for the rest of time after. This is a new Red Sea moment where God is walking across the water again, pulling people into a new thing, into a new creation, a new way of understanding, a new way of being. This is Jesus announcing, it is I, the new era is here. The kingdom has come and it's in your midst which brings us to where God walks. And that's what I love so much about this story. And this is flooded throughout Jesus's messages. So what do we make of this? What do we make of this story? And why is it so important? And how does it change how we think about God today? Or, or how does it inspire us to do uh, life with God today? First of all, this is a reminder that our God 
doesn't live on a mountain somewhere else. He's not afar off waiting for us to come to him, to ask for appeasement, to get him back on our side. Our God dwells here among us, and more specifically, in the hells, in the muck, in the desperation, in the mundane. Jesus would say this in the Sermon on the Mount, right? Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. The language there, when you interpret it, literally means uh, the term blessed means God is on the side of. So this is Jesus saying God is on the side of the meek. God is on the side of those who mourn. God is on the side of the hungry and the thirsty and the poor, which would have been different from how people interpreted gods in the day of Jesus, who thought that God was on the side of the powerful and the rich and the mighty. But our God dwells in the broken places, in the places where it seems like there may not be much hope, in the places where rock bottom feels really comfortable and familiar. That's where Jesus walks. So I want you to know that if you feel that, if you feel like you're in a desperate circumstance or an unwinnable situation or a scary situation, I think the message here is I I don't know what the future looks like. Sometimes God makes things right in that moment, and sometimes God doesn't make things right in that moment. And I don't understand why that happens, but I do believe fully that God is with you. And that maybe there can be hope and comfort and love and purpose in that realization. So if you feel far away from God this morning, know that God is beside you, welcoming you and celebrating you. The second thing that I think is really interesting here is sometimes following God calls us out into really risky, unsafe, unpredictable, illogical places. And maybe we've grown a little bit too comfortable in our ways of being faithful. So I'd encourage you to think about where might God be leading me? What might God be asking me to step into that seems impossible or that seems scary or that seems uh, illogical and against reason? And I'm not saying don't think fully through these things. I'm just saying that God's ways are God's ways and he calls us out into the deep from time to time. So, as a way of of closing this, um, we live in this new era where God walks among us, where God walks with us, where God walks through us. And I hope that as you go back home this week, as you think about what this means for you, it inspires your imagination to drift into different places. It inspires you to go to new places in your faith and in your mind. Because God is here, walking with us in all the places that we thought he was absent. That's good news. We're going to have uh, communion this morning. We're going to have uh, some, some more worship. There are going to be people praying on the sides. So when we worship, please feel free to get prayer on the sides for anything that you want that is free and available to you.
if communion people will come forward, um, we'll, we'll give the communion message, and uh, I hope that you have a great rest of your day. Uh, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he broke bread with his disciples. And he broke bread and he lifted it up and he said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat in remembrance of me. After they'd finished the bread, he raised the glass and he said, this is my blood poured out and shed for you. Take and remember me. For thousands of years after this moment, Christians in all places, in all societies, in all cultures have celebrated this, this feast this meal in their own ways through their own, their own times. We encourage you to partake in that today. This is an open communion table. Everyone is welcome to participate. Uh, we pray that as you take these elements that you commune, commune with God and meet God in this moment. I'll say a prayer. Please come forward, seek prayer if you want it, and enjoy worshiping. Uh, Father, we love you so much. Thank you for making yourself known to us. Uh, thank you for being a God of mercy and justice and compassion. Thank you for being a God of life and not of death. Uh, Father, I pray that you call us into new territories in our faith, that you cause us to walk into new places, not on our own, not isolated, not because we're bold, faithful, brave people who deserve all these things, but because we're just following you, God, and you will lead us where you want us to go. We love you. Through Christ we pray. Amen.